Grant, Lord God, to all who have been baptized into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, that as we have put away the old life of sin, so we may be renewed in the spirit of our minds and live in righteousness and true holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Welcome back to the house of the Lord. Welcome back to this sanctuary of silence, now become the sanctuary of the word. This morning we entered into the house of silence and walked that long corridor into ourselves, the selves known and made by God, made for God. This afternoon we break that silence and break open the word. I invite you now to enter the house of the word. This is a familiar house, isn't it? The house of language. We have lived here most of our lives. The use of language has fashioned the selves we know most immediately and recognize as our own. For most scholars these days, from neuroscientists to philosophers and writers, language makes us human. It is the exercise of language, they say, that creates inwardness and the capacity for inner thought. Words, they might say, build up culture itself. When we look out over a cityscape, gaze at monuments and museums, wait at our crosswalks, climb up into a train, travel to friends we have missed and longed to see. In every act of human culture, we enter the house of words. Language is not merely a collection of syllables, of sounds ordered by rules and custom. It is not simply a gathering together of signs placed in rows, broken up with spaces and stops. It is not merely writing, however remarkable that is. Language in a larger sense is human civilization itself, the astonishing production of artifacts of all kinds, large and small, and the work we take up to fashion them, from the making of clothing and the making of treaties to the making of war and the memorials we erect to the peace that is made to last. Words have power all their own. We can do things with them, the English philosopher J.L. Austin reminded us, make promises and take vows, 
Give a ruling, determine a starting point, forgive and welcome back. They are instruments, these words, and more than that, they build up reality. In just this way, words are holy mysteries, a gift of the good God, who is word himself and the creator of all things visible and invisible. The rabbinic tradition teaches us that the word of Torah is eternal. It pre-exists in the eternal mind of God as his wisdom and his command. There is no Lord God who is not intelligible, not rational or true, not word in this majestic and ineffable sense. To say that the Logos, the word, the Torah, always is, is to affirm that God is a power who is through and through rational and intelligent. Only demons are brute force, breaking down and scattering without meaning or purpose at all. We seldom take time to reflect in prayer and sermon on the extraordinary gift of rationality in the doctrine of God. But in this quiet day, and in our meditation on the dwelling place of language, we are given room to do just that. In the modern world, when we think about God at all, and we live and move within an age that seems to cast its mind Godward hardly at all, we move quickly to God's perfections of love and goodness. God's intelligibility rarely occupies the first rank. But we may well pause today to consider what it would mean to us creatures were the Lord God to be irrational or utterly unknowable. Were the one God to be real, but without word, without logos, that God would be something like an explosion, a tremendous cataclysm that was impenetrable, irresistible, dark. To acknowledge that such a deity exists would be to stand in awe of an energy that had movement, power, but no telos, no inner purpose or law, but rather hemmed us about as did Ananke, necessity or fate to the Greeks. The very principle of the cosmos would be without principle at all, random and inexplicable. Such a God would be very much like Descartes' evil genius, but worse. To affirm a Lord without word is to give way to the darkest despair about reality, that at its heart it is meaningless, absurd, 
without light, without reason, indeterminate in a very strong sense. I very much fear that our neighbors and companions on life's way who do not know an intelligible God live in this chaos, this unnamed despair. For them, for us perhaps when suffering sweeps over us, the very structure of reality collapses and we move in a turbulent sea of forces, too random, too dark and chaotic to interpret or to withstand. A God who is wisdom and word stands in this breach. He is the light, the order and intelligibility that defines reality. He alone makes the real rational. This is not quite as Hegelian as it sounds. When we bow before the God of light, we enter the house of language and walk into a world that is cosmos, an ordered and intelligible universe that in this way speaks the Lord's name and follows the Torah which he is. For this reason, King David, at the end of his life, praises the Lord God who speaks. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. But why then is the world as chaotic and unthinkably cruel as it is? Why is reality itself not more suffused with this ordered house of language, more kind, more secure, more rooted in rationality? Why does the false god Anenke seem so powerful, as if chaos were his familiar, and he hung over us as our nameless destiny? We have good reason as disciples of Jesus Christ to ask these broad and searching questions. For it is now in these present days that we enter into the season of Lent. Lenten discipline is not just one practice, not just one teaching, rather it is many. A holy Lent is silence and inwardness, and it is also speech, a discipline of the charity of words. So we might begin this Lenten season with a reflection upon words, the words that do things in the world, those things we ought to repent of, the speech that unmakes the very order of the cosmos. 
Think once again of King David and his wrenching grief over the death of Absalom, his son and his rival for the throne. The house of language became a treacherous dwelling place for David's royal line and for his children in those days. Holy Scripture tells us that Absalom was the beautiful one from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, praised throughout the land of Israel for his shimmering beauty, a rival even in his body to his father David, the shepherd king of ruddy complexion and beautiful eyes. This lovely son Absalom became the defender of his sister Tamar and the enemy of Amnon, her brother and her assailant. Already in the house of David, words had become tools of violence. The sickbed dish Amnon desired from Tamar masked more violent desires. Amnon loved his sister with such passion that he fell ill from desire. So he covered his menace with words of flattery and deceit. After Amnon raped his sister, he despised her. Words of love turned to words of hate that day. Ashes in his mouth, ashes on her head in grief and horror and shame. Absalom vowed to kill his brother Amnon and words would be his servant in that cause. A feast he would lay on for David the king, nothing too lavish for the royal household. Artful and persistent flattery brought Amnon to Absalom's house. Wine made him incautious and stolid. Absalom's servants killed him that hour. In horror, Absalom flees the king's wrath, and the king's sons flee Absalom, covered in terror and grief. This is the bitter harvest words have reaped. And this is the son, the beautiful Absalom, who will rise up against David and proclaim himself king. Absalom nearly succeeds in wresting the throne from his father. He sits in the gate, hearing complaints and giving judgments. He flatters and promises. He makes alliances and offers vain hope of more. He exercises the art of kingship, a reign of words. But the chariot and the horses and the 50 men running in front of his team were not enough to make him Israel's king. Even though the scriptures pointedly call his army Israel down to the last battle. David's divine election could not end with his son's treason. God's word alone 
would stand true in Israel when all else spoke lies. Absalom would be killed by Joab, David's commander, and by Joab's elite guards. And this would be proclaimed victory for David. On hearing these words of triumph, David grieves. His tormented cry seems to catch up the whole terrible legacy of his family, from Bathsheba and Uriah to Tamar and Amnon to the rebels and rivals in his family and inner circle and to the final death of Absalom's brother Adonijah, the last rival to their father David's throne. All this violence was wrought through words and disguised by them. In our Lenten discipline, we seek to lay such icy examples to heart. What has this gift of language, this splendid tabernacle, become in our hearts and on our lips? Have the passions, the desires, and rages driven our speech so that our words become weapons in a destructive campaign? Have we learned the art of saying little with an air of candor, as if we were speaking truth when, in fact, we were fleeing it? Have we studied or fallen into the common practice of the flatterer who praises others in order to get our own way? Have we betrayed, denied, abandoned? Have we spoken in such a way as to make ourselves seem big by making others small? Words of contempt, words of pity, words of condescension, scorn, all our meanness cunningly made clever by clever words. Those of us working and studying in a seminary have special reason to repent of using words to damage others and to exalt ourselves. Here in this place, we are taught the art of argument, of rhetoric and persuasion, the critical study of texts and authorities, the moving and eloquent expression of our ideas in homily and catechesis. We spend our days embracing and enhancing the power of words. The house of language is the tent we dwell in here, and we build up our ministries through the capacious expanse of words, well-chosen, well-ordered. Such training can be put to the service of the kingdom, and it can be put to the service of quite another domain, that of destruction and scattering, of pulling down and hollowing out. In this Lenten season, we seek to see ourselves in God's holy light, 
to know what we have done and left undone, to discover in the divine justice the devices and desires of our own hearts, what is hidden from us but not from Almighty God. That is the gift of repentance, itself a donation from the house of language. We seek that renewed repentance as disciples of the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. No Christian can truly find the root and scope of language without reverent knowledge of him, the very eternal Word of God come to earth. Here in the life of Jesus Christ, we take the full measure of words and come to see truly how we should enter this house of language. We know that Jesus himself exercised the perfect gift of silence and of speech, he the sole one without sin. Without words at his birth, quiet in his mother's arms, he began his life among us in the great stillness that is the heavenly Sabbath. He brought that bit of heaven with him, too, when he came. Only at life's end does silence shroud him again, like a lamb in the hands of its shearers. He was mute before his accusers. He, the word, was silent finally after those last wrenching cries, yielding his spirit up and entering the utter stillness of death. Silence, too, Christ teaches us, is a house we occupy as his followers. But he shows us more. He shows us speech in its fathomless riches. To be about his Father's work was the purpose and goal of his speech. He spoke always as one called and determined and self-dedicated to the royal kingdom of God. Jesus was a preacher of that kingdom, a herald whose speech served to announce and warn and instruct about the astonishing nearness of God to his people. He spoke in parables, tales of crafty kings and yet more crafty stewards, of robbers and thieves, swindlers and cowards, misfits of all kinds, troubled families, rebellious sons, envious laborers, and lazy ones, too. These were all human lives in their brokenness and their vitality, brought within the divine light and made serviceable to the kingdom. Jesus spoke, too, to the people of the earth, the lowly and the lost, whom priests and Levites, all of us vested elites, passed by on the other side. His was the language of freedom, 
of pardon, of deliverance. Jesus encountered his enemies with holy speech. He rebuked the raging and destructive powers and commanded them to leave the tormented. He rebuked the all-too-righteous who would not leave the penitent woman alone. He rebuked death itself, who thought Lazarus was within its grasp. Come out of there, Jesus commanded. And so this word of life commands us this day. Come out of the house of betrayal and deceit. Come out of the cold land of indifference and fear. Come out of the dwelling place that has room only for a few. Come into the Lord's house, the sanctuary of perfect rest and perfect word, the dwelling place of holiness and of welcome. Learn from our Lord Jesus Christ the inward way, the descent into our inmost heart, the path of repentance, and learn from him the outward way, the way of blessing, of service, and of gratitude. For this is the renewed and purified house of language, the mansions with its many places prepared for us by this one who is our dwelling place, the Lord who tabernacles among us, the perfect word made perfect flesh. Come, let us enter the house of the word together.